0: Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of Chats in the Blog Cabin, the show where I invite people into the blog cabin to chat about life. I'm Melissa, your host. Today I'm continuing the segment with um, parents, parenting, parenting special needs kids, going through the foster system, all these types of things. Today I'm actually talking to a wonderful author, um, and his story is really cool and amazing, He is a correctional officer who decided he was going to write a book. And so I'm looking forward to reading his book. Um, I hope you really enjoyed this conversation with Steve. It was a really great conversation. I learned a lot about it. Um, And his story about how they adopted his two kids is just amazing as well. Um, So I hope you really enjoyed listening to this chat and enjoy another episode another segment of my parenting foster care special needs care adoption type seminar our episodes and you know what i need you to do right now that's right start listening Welcome back to another edition of chats from the blog cabin today I'm joined by Steve who actually you had an interesting career change at age 54 you published your first novel so tell us a little bit about yourself Steve
1: yes oh wow uh, well there's a lot to tell when you're 54 you got a lot to tell. Um, I'm originally from Illinois I worked in corrections actually worked for the Illinois Department of Corrections for 25 years probably the least creative work environment you can be in um, retired at the beginning of 2018 moved to Florida. And um, always wanted to write a book. And I decided, you know, if I'm going to do it, better get started. So I've I've done it.
0: And your book actually built on your years as a correction officer, right? Kind of your experience is kind of in there?
1: Yeah, the uh, the story originated with a story I was told when I started working in prisons in 93, uh, kind of a, a crazy tale about something that happened in the prison. I thought, well, that can't be real, but I found out it was and I thought, well, that's interesting. That would make an interesting premise for a story, and it's kind of percolated in my head all this time, and uh, I built some characters around it, and I'm finally ready to tell it.
0: Now, let's talk about the book. the name um, of it.
1: The book is called Israfel Rising, Um, Israfel being the name of an angel, for those who aren't familiar. Um, It is about a serial killer who is recreating murders from Edgar Allan Poe stories and the group of cops Mm -hmm. who have to try to catch him and figure out why he's doing it, how he's doing it, and how they're going to catch him. So it's kind of a cat and mouse game. Wow.
0: I love that. I did not know it was based around Edgar Allan Poe. That is so cool.
1: Yeah, I'm a huge Poe fan. Um, I like all things spooky and scary. I grew up uh, with my aunts and my grandma showing me the old universal horror films with Karloff and Lugosi, and always loved that stuff. And uh, my dad was a homicide cop when I was a kid, so I was reading true crime before it was kind of fashionable, before it was like a fad thing to do. And um, plus the experience in the prison, kind of led me down this path. But I latched on to Poe early. When I was a kid in the 70s, if you were into spooky stuff, there weren't like goosebumps books and, and mm-hmm. things like that. You had to read the classics. And uh, we had a book of Poe stories in the house. And I started reading them and got hooked because nobody does it better. And uh, in some ways, the novel is kind of like my love letter to Poe and everything he gave us.
0: Oh, wow. So, yeah, I love that book. Honestly, and I honestly can identify a little bit with you. My dad, when I was growing up, he was in the Marine Corps, but then he oh. be- got out and became a chief of police. He became a police officer and he wow. retired yeah. at the age of 70 something. So I totally get you where the true crime comes in.
1: Yeah. It's uh, if you grow up around it, it kind of gets in your blood. It's it's interesting and it's, it's fascinating. And now it's like a whole subculture. There's people, the whole Facebook groups and things devoted to, True crime fanatics, but uh, I, I kind of grew up with with that in the house and in the air. So um, working in prisons didn't seem like such a big a big change from that. And now, kind of writing about bad people and why they do what they do is is kind of a natural progression.
0: Yeah, I just I just love that honestly. Um, so you said the premise of the book started when you were working. You heard it in the prison. So it just sat there with you for that long time.
1: Yes. Well, it was in the back of my head. And I've heard a lot of stories uh, and you, you get a lot of stories in law enforcement. I'm sure your dad has told you there's, there's some crazy, outrageous, unbelievable things that happen that people do to themselves and other people that, that uh, stick with you. But one of the early stories I was told when I was an officer was about an offender who escaped regularly and no one knew it. Um, this was a minimum security prison. It was actually an old mental hospital for the state that they had converted to a minimum security prison. So it wasn't built to be a prison. They kind of threw a fence around it and said, we're going to house minimum security people, nonviolent offenders, and uh, who are doing just a few years of time, and they'll be here. Well, part of my job when I started, I was working midnight shift, was fence patrol. And on fence patrol, you spent half the night walking the inner perimeter of the fence all around the facility, just making sure everything was okay and there was no one trying to get out. And then after your lunch break, you spent the second half of your shift driving a vehicle around the outside of the fence, also making sure no one was going anywhere. And at one of my first nights walking the fence, I had an officer who told me, uh, I said, has anybody ever gotten out of here? Because it seemed like It was, you know, it's something, it's the prison cliche. It's like if there's a movie about a prison, it involves an escape. It's just part of the thing. So I said, has anybody ever climbed over this fence? And he said, well, there was an officer one time off duty who went to a local bar on a, like late on a Friday or Saturday night, walked into the bar, walked up, ordered a beer, and was looking down the bar at all the people because it was crowded. And at the end of the bar saw someone he thought he recognized and he looked at him again and he realized it was an inmate from the prison sitting in the bar, having a beer, talking to people, just hanging out. And he called the police and they got the guy back in and he talked to the bartender the bartender said, Oh yeah, he's, he's down here every Friday night. He shows up, he hangs out for a couple hours, people buy him drinks and then he leaves. I don't even think they knew he was an offender and it was like he didn't want to escape he just wanted to get out and have a couple of beers and then go back and I don't know if if he had I don't know the particulars of if his officer just wasn't taking his counts like he was supposed to or uh there was something else going on I never got that end of it and I don't think they wanted to talk about that but uh, I was told by several officers it was a true story and I thought you know Al Capone was guilty of horrible crimes, but he went to prison for tax evasion because they couldn't get him on anything else. What if you had a guy who was a horrible, evil criminal, like a serial killer, and they couldn't catch him, but he got hung up on something else, something you know, minor, a little case, you know, a fender bender or something, and he went to a prison like this, and he was like a Hannibal Lecter level genius, and he could get out and come and go whenever he wanted to what would happen. And that was the seed of where this story came. And now you, I've, I've blown some of the surprise of the book for you, but that's, that's where that came from. It kind of just stuck in my head because it's a crazy story, but it, it was true.
0: I just I love, love, love the <laughs> advantage of being 54 years old to have your first book published and not letting it hold you back at all.
1: Well, I've wanted to write forever, and I've written things before. I've had some poems published uh, for 18 months in the 90s. I published and edited my own little magazine um, that went nowhere, and I've written like movie reviews and essays and things. And I always thought, God, a novel? Could I write a novel? It's such a commitment. You really got to believe in that story and those characters. And and once you start it, you know, it's not a 10-page short story. You're writing hundreds of pages. You it's a marathon. You've got to be ready for it. And I have always wanted to do it and wondered if I could, but, and this is something I see a lot in, in writers groups, in social media. Um, I was paralyzed, uh, absolutely paralyzed with Mm self-doubt. Um, that, that crazy pressure that we put on ourselves for anything we want to do or dream about doing, um, you know, I'm God, look at all the great books that are out there. How could I even think I could write anything even good enough to be close to that? You know, why write one more book that's gonna be out there and end up at the dollar store? You know, and why, you know, what makes me think I can do that? All the negative stuff you feed yourself because it's so much easier to believe the negative things than the positive things. So even though I've done lots of different creative things over the years, um I always kind of had writing a book in the back of my mind, but I didn't really think I could do it. And I've reached the point at 54 and retired from one job work. Now I work for the Florida department of corrections. Um, I said, you know yeah. what? I'd rather no, no, you can't write a book. I'd rather try it and fail than be lying on my deathbed going, God, I wonder if I could have done it. So, I took that idea of, of the few I had in my head. I thought, I'm okay. I'm going to take this story and I'm going to work. I'm going to write what I know. Everybody's first book is supposed to be autobiographical, right? I'm going to write something I know, and go with it and see if I can commit to it and stick to it and do it. Because I started a novel several times over the years and write three chapters and read it and go, oh, this is no one's going to want to read this. And you stick it in the drawer and it, you never see it again. I think there's lots more people who've done that, than people who've actually finished a book. So I finally decided to do it. And I started and I said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not stopping no matter how bad I think it is, no matter how many times I get stuck, if writer's block, I'm going to plow through, I'm going to do it. And if I finish it, and it's God awful, and everyone who reads it says it's God awful. Okay, now I know I can't write a book either. But at least I will have an answer. And I stuck to it. And Sent it to people who I knew would give me an honest answer who wouldn't just say, oh, you wrote a book? Oh, it's really good. You know, I didn't want that. I wanted people to read it with a critical eye and give me feedback like they don't know me. And um, it was overwhelmingly positive. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I can do this after all. And now we're putting that book out there. And I'm working okay, on the good. second one.
0: So technically, how long did it take you before you actually started writing? And then how long did it take you to write the book?
1: Wow, I started writing the book last year. So early 2019, probably the turn of the year, probably right around January. And um, I work full time. And my wife is a nurse who works crazy hours even before COVID happened. And is on her feet 12 hour days, five, six days a week. So you know, I work 40 hours a week at a desk in air conditioning at a computer. So when I get home, I take care of the household stuff. Um, Our son lives with us and I help him with anything he needs help with. And um, so I don't have a lot of free time. So I started writing it. I committed Sunday mornings to working on the book. And so I would write four to six hours every Sunday morning, occasionally a little bit on a Saturday. Um, And it took me, until it was actually my birthday, August 9th, when I finished the manuscript. And I said, okay, I'll, this is as good as I can make it. And, and you know, whether it's good enough or not, I'm done with this. I may have written the worst book in the world, but I could, I've written a book. So it took about mm-hmm. eight months of four to six hours a week. Um and, and here we are. And the second one is is kind of on the same schedule, still still working full time, still taking care of most of the household stuff. So it's, it's slow going, but it, it means I have to make the most of what writing time I get. I can't dawdle. I can't let writer's block stop me. If I'm stuck at a spot, I just skip it and move on to the next thing and fill it in later. You know, It's not like making a stew. You can skip something and put it in at the end when you're done. You know, It doesn't have to be all in line at the same time. Your first draft is supposed to be terrible. You know, and because then you can go back and fix it. So it about eight months, yeah, of of what six hours a week, whatever that would come out to. So I, I hustled, and it's not it's not terribly long. It's about two hundred and thirty pages, so seventy five thousand words.
0: So did you self publish or did you go for a publisher for it?
1: I self-published, and I originally, when I started, told myself, you know what, I'm not going to self-publish. No matter what I do, I am not going to self-publish because I've, I've I know people who have done it, and I've I've heard stories about it. And you know, anybody can publish a book on Amazon or or whatever. It doesn't have to be good, you know. And uh, I thought, you know what, this is a crime thriller. It's it's like pulp fiction, suspense kind of thing. So it's a popular genre. I thought certainly I can get a publishing house to take this. If not, then it's clearly no good, but there is a market for it. So that'll be the litmus test of whether or not I wrote a good book, if strangers will give me money for it. That was my thinking at the time. And I started doing research into what it takes to get your book traditionally published. There are only about five major publishing houses left. Um, Unless you're an established author or a celebrity or someone very unique, um, a public figure, it's very difficult to get your foot in the door. You have to get an agent first off, which is hard. You have to write what's called a query to your agent and try to try to get them to take you on as a client. And then the agent has to shop the book around and try to get it sold to a publisher. And I was talking to people who were published and they were saying, it's like, yeah, it's, it takes 18 to 24 months usually. That was before COVID happened. And um, there's no guarantee that you'll find an agent And I was watching YouTube interviews with agents who were saying, you know, this book seemed like there was maybe a market for it, but I really didn't like it. I couldn't relate to it personally, or there was something in it that offended me or reminded me of something unpleasant in my life. And I thought, well, if you're an agent, your only criteria should be, is there a market for this book? Whether or not you personally Mm -hmm. like it. You know, if, if, if I was a celiac and I owned a grocery store, I would still sell bread, even though I can't eat it and don't like it, because that's what market wants. This is my business, not my hobby. So I thought there's enough agents that were saying things like that that made me think, you know, traditional publish, if you're traditionally published, kudos to you. But that really only means two things. That means you found two people who read a lot, an agent and a publisher who liked your book. Um, Their opinion matters no more or less to me than two complete strangers who buy my book off of Amazon and read it and say they like it. So I thought, you know, I'm 54. I don't want them to place my my copy of my first book on my casket. I wanna see this happen and, and maybe do more. So I decided self-publishing was, was actually the way for me to go after all. I retain more rights and ownership of the book and control where it goes. I had a say-so over the cover, things like that. Um, because publishing houses use their own artists. And I have a friend, a dear friend, who's a fantastic artist, um, makes her living and has done so for decades with her art. And I said, you know what? I want no one else but her to do my cover. And so now I made that happen. Whereas with a publishing house, mm-hmm. they would have done what they wanted to do for the cover. So I like the autonomy. I like having control over what I put out. And uh, it doesn't bother me so much that I have, I'm not going to, you know, you're not going to find my book at Walmart. Um, I'm maybe not going to sell as many copies, self-publishing. I'm going to have to work harder marketing it myself with social media and self-promotion. You know what? That's okay. That doesn't bother me. I'm more happy that I'm happy. I achieved my goal when I wrote a book that other people decided was good. Whether or not it makes any money, it's, it's icing. I, I achieved what I set out to do. So it's all good from here on out. So I, I decided to go the self-publishing route. And I'm really happy with so
0: will you self-publish the second book as well because you said you're working on the second book
1: now yes the second book that well i should say the next book um because my main character in my first book is a female detective who's going to be my main character in all my books as far as i can tell from now on so the next book will will finish this storyline and also Give the readers more about her, and then after that, I've already got a third one planned with a completely different storyline and new challenges for her to face. Uh, I'm in love with her, so I'm gonna keep her around for a while.
0: I love that. Not many people you hear, especially male authors, have a strong female character as their their lead person. So I love that.
1: Uh, I'm I'm unabashedly a fan of strong and independent women. Um, My mom is a, a strong woman. Um, my wife of 32 years, this may, uh, is an incredibly strong, independent woman. And, um, I, I admire them greatly. And I decided when I needed, I created my villain first. I had the story, then I created my villain. And then I thought, okay, I need cops to go after this guy. So I created a team of four cops who are all very different. And the one that grew on me the most is this female. So she's going to be. The lead from now on, and she's a she's a potty mouthed Welsh woman with a naughty sense of humor and wild red hair she can't control. Who is better at figuring all this stuff out than anybody else? So, um, I, and I accidentally did something uh, that was good business sense. I'm told uh, it turns out about eighty five percent of most readers of any genre, even like westerns, are female. And um, yeah. so someone said, well, you're, 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 you're appealing to the marketplace by doing a, a strong female lead. I'm like, no, that's what I wanted to do. I just accidentally did something that was business savvy. That It almost never happens. So um, she's terrific. She's based – one of the things I did to help me form the characters in my head and give them depth and personality was to cast actors as the characters. So once I did that, they had a face and a voice and I could hear them in my head. And it's my, it's this little fantasy I have that I will sell enough copies of the book that like maybe Amazon or Netflix will make it into a show. And the actress I have in mind to play her will actually play her. That's my dream. It'll never happen, but it's fun to think about. So now yeah, so, women. women run the world. So
0: now That's you put truth. it out there. Yeah, I gotta yes. know who it's who is the actress.
1: Ah, she was inspired by Kathleen Wilhoyt, who, if you don't recognize her name, you know her because everybody's seen her because she's been in everything. Um, have you seen Roadhouse? Mm, a long a time ago. Uh, she was Carrie, the singing waitress in Roadhouse. Um, mm. she was on The Gilmore Girls. She's been in everything. She's terrific, nice person, great actress, great singer, and um. She just, when I had to pick a face and a voice for this character, that's who I picked. So,
0: Who was she on Gilmore Girls?
1: I was not a regular viewer, so I can't remember. I don't think she was a, I think she was like a reoccurring character. Mm-hmm. I'd have to look it up. I'm trying to think of other things she's done. Um, and I'm drawing a blank because I'm on the spot. If I wasn't, I could probably think of more. Um Good Lord. I'm I'm drawing a complete blank. If she ever watches this, she'll be really mad. (laughs) um, She's, she's terrific. Um, And if, if they can't convince her to do it, I've even got a backup. So uh, who's the backup? uh, Fiona Durif, who you can see on the stand right now, she's playing rat woman, another Mm -hmm. strong redheaded female lead. So,
0: now, when you were doing the characteristics of your female lead, were you taking some of the characteristics that you admire in your wife and in your mom and combining that into the character?
1: Not my mom so much, but my wife definitely. Um, the character, Emmeline, she, she takes no guff from anybody. And that's very much my wife. Um, she's smart. She's... Um, strong personality, she is not intimidated by anybody, and she she's going to do what she thinks is right, uh, damn the consequences. So, um, and she's actually eavesdropping on us. Yes, dear? Liz, she played Liz Lewis on the Gilmore Girls. And Chloe on ER.
0: Okay, I think I know who she is now. Red hair. She was Luke's sister. On the Gilmore
1: Girls. She's terrific. I think you're right. Yeah. If if memory. Yeah, starts. I know
0: who she is Liz now. Danes yeah.
1: Liz Danes on Gilmore. Sam yeah. corrected. And e. Chloe Lewis on ER. And Carrie, a singing waitress in Roadhouse. She's yeah. terrific. She's on Facebook, and I'm I'm gently nagging her to read the book, but she's awfully busy because she's very talented. So.
0: Well, I love that you already have that actor or actress in mind to play the lead if it ever goes. Because when I ask that question to a lot of authors, they're like, I have no idea. I haven't even thought about that. So you're already thinking ahead.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, it it helped me um, because I'm riddled with insecurity. And when I was starting, I was like having trouble fully fleshing out the characters. I didn't want stereotypes. I didn't want two-dimensional characters the the villain is so strong that I said these these cops have got to be good and they've got to be different if you've got a team if you want to create a team of people to do something you've got to get different people you can't have three or four people who do everything the same and think the same you want all your bases covered so I've got four very different people in there and I had to cast all four of them so uh, she's in there Anthony Anderson is one of them Andy Garcia is one of them um Amazon call me I'm ready to get the show going. I've even got a theme song. So, yeah, I that helped me to to visualize everything. So, I'm not a visual guy. I love movies, books, um so, yeah, that helped. I don't I don't I don't know how I could have not done that. I don't know how anyone would write a book and not think, well, who would play this character? Surely you got someone in mind.
0: I mean honestly I don't think a lot of people even realize that or even think about that. And you've already got a theme song too? Wow.
1: Yeah, I well, you know, I get some downtime at work on my lunch breaks. I'll sit around and think. Wouldn't it be cool? You know, you fantasize about stuff like that. So, I do anyway.
0: Now, you also had a really different type of career moves as well because you said you already published one of your magazines, you were a correctional officer, you mm-hmm. were a disc jockey? And yes. wrestler?
1: Uh Yeah. Well, I've always looked for a creative outlet. Um, I was a theater major in college. Um, and I was my goal was to write and direct movies um, when I got out of college. But in college, I met my wife, fell in love, changed everything. So a week after graduation, I got a real mm-hmm. job. And I've uh, been working at those ever since. But I've always looked for a creative outlet. So in 2000, I, I love music huge fan of music. Um, I grew up in a house where on the weekends, my parents would just put a stack of records on the record player, and they would just play all day one after another. And it was all kinds of stuff. Big band and swing music from the 40s, then Buddy Holly, then Santana. I mean, admit no rhyme or reason, but they loved it all. And I grew up with this great musical education. So I love Um, music. And in 2002, I had the opportunity to do a a weekly two-hour radio show at a local radio station uh, in the town I was living in in Illinois. It has a private college that has its own radio station. There aren't enough students to fill all the slots for the station. So they opened it up to local townspeople. So I started doing a two-hour weekly radio show and I did that for five years and actually DJed a couple of club gigs off of that. Um, didn't have a whole lot of listeners, but had a whole lot of fun and actually got to interact with some of the bands and artists that I liked and debut some songs. There are, there are a couple songs that I was the first person to ever put on the radio. So that was kind of cool. And so, then you were so,
0: pro wrestling.
1: Yes. Pro wrestling was, was another, that was, that lasted longer. Um, I grew up as a fan of wrestling, old time wrestling from the seventies and not the stuff you see today. It's more cartoony and silly. Um, it was presented as a serious sport and I grew up loving it, but never imagined that I could do it. Never even thought about it. Um, even, you know, went to a wrestling show as a kid and met a couple of the wrestlers and it never occurred to me to say, Hey, how can I do what you do? I'd, no, of course not. They'd be like, I want to be an astronaut. That's not possible. I couldn't become a wrestler. And then in the mid nineties, I met, um, C-Raw McGuirt who actually edited my book, uh, dear friend of mine, um, like a brother to me. And he had been a wrestler for a year. He'd actually gotten trained and started working wrestling shows in Tennessee with the idea in mind to write a book about what it's like to be a wrestler long before it was exposed Mm -hmm. as a show or uh, the dreaded F word fake. um, He wrote an expose. Uh, He wrote a book called blue collar ballet. I actually have a copy of it here. And um, I met him and uh, bought the book. And I said, you gotta, you know, this book is fascinating. And I think even for someone who, doesn't give a darn about wrestling. It's a fascinating story of someone exploring a whole nother world and culture that's foreign to themselves, and, and learning things from it they didn't expect. And uh, he said it was fantastic. I loved doing it. Didn't make any money. I got banged up, but I loved doing it. You can't put a price on experience. If you ever get the chance, do it. I said, well, it's never going to happen. I'm 31 years old, and I'm no athlete. You know, um, some guys wear shirts that say like tap out in UFC. My shirts say cook out and KFC. Um, so no it's not for me but I found a wrestling school online a couple hours from my house and again it was like it was like this thing with the book I thought I wonder yeah, maybe I could be a referee or make the popcorn or something but maybe I could do this and started training and got the heck beat out of me and didn't make any money and got hurt a lot and still have chronic injuries from it but I was involved in it off and on on the weekends for years and met people I grew up watching and learned a lot and made great friends and had experiences I can't put a price on. So I did that for several years, um, drove all over the Midwest doing shows when I could until I got not seriously hurt, but hurt enough that I thought, you know, I've got a day job. I've got two special needs kids at home and a wife that count on me to bring home the bacon. And I'm not making any mind doing this. It's just fun. If I really mess myself up, then I'm putting my hobby before their needs, and I can't do that. So I kind of walked away from it. But uh, every once in a while, I, I'll i be in a store and see an action figure of someone I know. And that's kind of surreal and kind of cool. So, yeah, I did that for a while. And it's I studied theater in college. Uh, wrestling is theater. In every sense of the word, it's uh, it's like ballet dancing in a way. You beat up your body to tell a story in silly costumes and absurd situations. But if you do it right, the audience will have a good time.
0: So who did you get to meet you got to meet some
1: these people? Oh, wow. You'd have to be uh, an old-school wrestling fan to know some of these people. I got to meet Jimmy Valiant. Um, I got to meet Mad Dog Vashan. And actually introduce him to a crowd. That was cool. Um, um, Marty Janetti, Bob Orton, Terry Funk, Sabu, the Sandman, who was a jerk. Um, let's see. Among uh, Raven, met him twice. He was cool. The Road Warriors, um, who were great guys, um, very intimidating. Bam Bam Bigelow, who's passed away now. Um, and among people who are out there now that, that younger listeners might know, um, I did a lot of shows with, with Seth Rollins, and I did shows with CM Punk, um, Austin Aries, Sean Daivari, uh, a couple of people who are, who are making a living and have made quite a good living uh, doing it, making their dreams come true. And I'm honored to know them and have played around with them for a while. It was fun. It's living a childhood fantasy. What's more fun than that?
0: So do you think <laughs> you a wrestler? Right?
1: There's Wrestling is actually mentioned in the first book because um, you write about what you know. And like I said, every, every new writer seems to be drawn to writing something autobiographical. And while this isn't my story in this book, the two lead cops who are partners and are like oil and water, um, that the one thing they have in common beside their job is wrestling. So they talk about wrestling periodically through the book and, and name drop a couple of people. I actually know, in, including uh, C-Raw. Um, one thing that happened, I got stuck very quickly coming up with names for minor and ancillary characters, you know, characters who just show up very briefly. I thought, Okay. And then the secretary, John, And I started thinking, well, I can't call this character this name because I know someone by that name. I don't want them to think that I think of them as this unpleasant character, but I need a name. So I put it out on Facebook. I said, you know what? If you know me and we're cool, there's a good chance you're going to end up in this book somewhere because I need names. So I just started using names of people I know. So there's probably 20 people I actually know who are mentioned in the book in some way. So it's kind of an in-joke between those of us who are in the know, they read it, and see their name or some the name of someone else they know, uh, people i worked with and people I know. So there's things that amuse only a few of us in there, but it, it helped me and rather than flipping through the phone book and trying to find names that worked. So you, you, whatever works, whatever it takes.
0: I love that. Now I will say you've already warned me that this book is not for young children. It's an, an adult book. No. So tell why you put that little.
1: Uh, yeah, well, it's very important uh, in in the more enlightened and sensitive times we're living in to alert your readers readers to what's in a book. You don't. The last thing I would want would be for someone to pick up my book, and read it and be triggered into reliving something or having a nightmare of something unpleasant. Uh, this is supposed to be entertaining, but it's, it's about a serious matter and, and un, unpleasant people. So, um, yeah, it's, it's only for adults to read. There's uh, lots of bad language cause that's how cops talk. Um, there's descriptions of violence and like the aftermath of murder scenes, There's um, a lot of inappropriate sexual humor because that's how cops talk, especially my main character. She's, she's a potty mouth, but she's funny. Um, And, and just kind of uh, dark themes. I I wouldn't want a young person who wasn't ready to read this, to read it and, or even even an adult who's going to be triggered by those things. Um, You know, if, if reading the F word upsets you, and I don't mean fake this time, uh, this, this isn't your book, I'm sorry, but I wanted to make it as realistic as I could. Best compliment I've gotten so far on the book was from a retired Alabama policeman uh, who read it and wrote to me. We were texting back and forth and he said, either you were a cop or you have a cop on your research team. And I said, well, Neither, but that's great because if, if you didn't look at it and go, well, this is stupid. Cops don't act that way. Cops don't talk that way. Cops don't think that way. I'd feel like I failed. But um, you develop when you work in corrections or law enforcement, or I've learned through my wife nursing, when you work in a field where you see the worst of, of people, it's very common to develop what most people would consider a dark or sick sense of humor to help you cope with that. Cause humor is, is a coping mechanism for everybody. And, uh, the worse things you're experiencing that the more you can find a way to joke your way through it, the less you'll cry. So there's, there's some, I guess what you'd call sick humor in there, but it's, it's, uh, the cops doing what they have to do living in the world that they're living in. Um, Oddly enough, the person who swears the least in the book is the bad guy, who's an absolutely horrible excuse for a human being. So,
0: was that by (laughs) the one that uh, cussed less or talked like that
1: less? He he's very very controlled and very emotionless. And I thought, well, he doesn't. He's capable of losing his temper, but it's really doesn't happen very often. He's kind of bloodless in a way he's he's not a relatable person i didn't want a relatable villain um when you watch uh you know hannibal lecter in a movie yeah he's the bad guy but you you like him you kind of admire him and and you're not necessarily rooting against him even though what he's doing is really bad um like like a freddy krueger Everybody went to see Freddie, even though guy he said he's killing kids, but yeah, but he's, he's kind of cool. Uh, or the TV show Dexter, where mm-hmm. you have a serial killer kind of hero, because he's killing other serial killers. Um, it's, it's interesting, but I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to jump on that bandwagon. I wanted it because I've met serial killers and uh, they're not happy people and they're generally not cool and they're not pleasant they're not fun to talk to. So with a few, so I, I set out and I said, this is not going to be a likable guy. No one's going to read this book and go, God, he's really good. He's cool. Yes, he is good. But everyone so far has had the reaction that I wanted them to have, which was, God, I can't wait till they stop this guy. You know, no one's rooting for him. And he's, if anything, he's, he's worse in the second book. So, I didn't want to glamorize um, evil in any way. Uh, the good guys may be a little rough around the edges, but they're definitely the good guys. And, and you want to root for them, especially in the line.
0: Yeah. And basically, <laughs> people, that you see every day, you know, people cuss every in everyday life, no matter, even if they say yeah. they don't, they do. So you kind of wanted to make them more normalized, right? Not so picture perfect.
1: Yeah, exactly. There is one cop who really doesn't swear, um, but she's a bit of a fuddy-duddy. She's a bit of a stick in the mud. I've got uh, two main female cops and two main male cops, and they're all completely different. And the two women have a history that's not good between the two of them. Um, they don't get along at all, and that kind of feeds part of the tension when they're sitting around debating and discussing and arguing about what's going on and trying to figure out how to stop this guy because they've all got a different idea of, of what's going on. So that, that creates some tension too. But yeah, people, people cuss. We all know this. And uh, I wanted to be re- realistic. You can't have a cop, you know, chasing a serial killer down the alley and, and doesn't catch him and go, well, darn, no one would believe that. You know, you can't say, well, then he said something naughty. You, you just have to put it out there. Um, And that's what I did. I didn't try to be gratuitous with it, but it's, it's how they talk. It's how we talked in corrections, most of us. Um, It's just living in the world that you speak the language of the world you're living in.
0: So that's, let's let's, let's. Take it to another direction now. You also adopted and you have two special needs kids. Talk about that.
1: Yes, they are awesome. Um, My wife and I learned early in our marriage that we weren't able to have our own biological children. And we debated what to do. We considered like in vitro fertilization and things like that. But it's terribly expensive. It can be very difficult on a woman physically to go through those things. And there's no guarantee of success. And uh, we're, we we love our families and we're proud to be members of our families, but we're not so enamored of our own DNA that we felt like we had to insist that any child that we love and raises our own has to have our DNA. There's so many kids out there who need adopting. And we thought, you know, we have, we have several good friends who are adopted. And so we thought, you know, adoption is an alternative. Why not give a kid a home and parents that will love them? So we went through the process of applying to be a foster home, which you had to do first in Illinois. You have to be a foster home for at least six months before you can apply for the adoption process. And my wife and I are both white, uh, or as I refer to myself, mostly white, because I'm 10% Cherokee, but I'm a white guy. And I mention this because one of the things we were told early on is, well, if you want a healthy white infant, the waiting list is years long. And we said, well, we walked in here and said we wanted to adopt a child. We didn't say healthy. We didn't say white. white don't, you know, don't assume that about us. Um, we, we, we're not that way. We're colorblind. Um, and we were told that if we wanted to consider a special needs adoption, um, that we could do that, but that it would have its own challenges. And we would, did we really think we were ready for that? Um, and we've both had ex- prior experience working with special needs people and people who are multiply challenged with, with physical and mental and emotional issues. So we thought, okay, we, we, we know a little bit about these sorts of things. Um, let's Let's consider it at least. Let's look into it. And when you make that decision, something extraordinary and very difficult happens, at least happened back then they gave us literally a list of three or four sheets of paper stapled together. And it was a list of diseases, disorders, disabilities. And they asked you to go through the list and indicate whether or not you would accept a child with those disabilities or challenges. And it was terrible um, because you feel like a bad person. You know, every time you look at something and go, oh, no, and then you're like, oh, my God, I feel like I just, you know, turned that child away. You, you feel like the worst person in the world. But uh, we did that, and we turned the paper in, and we got certified as a foster home, and we thought, well, okay, now we wait. And about a week later, much sooner than we expected, our caseworker said, hey, got a little boy for you to look at. He's eight months old. He's on, he just came off a feeding tube. He's on a heart monitor. Um, he's, he's got a one in four chance of having some some severe mental impairment and challenges. Um, he's got a lot going on. He's got fetal alcohol syndrome, but uh, he's a sweet boy. And we think we think it might be a good match for him. We want, want you to foster him. So we went and met him. And as soon as we looked at that face, we just fell in love. Just the cutest little smile you've ever seen. Uh, he, he's adorable still and at 26 and he knows it. Um, but we took him home and fostered him for a couple of days and we said, yeah, I don't want to let this little guy go. And so we were his foster parents for, oh, good Lord. About a year before we got to adopt him as a special needs adoption, um, lots of challenges but he is he is a fantastic guy and uh just amazing we had um it was funny um, there were other couples he he was this is this could be a long show you got is this a 4 hour show right <laughs> um, he was staying with a foster family when we took him in um the foster family he was with wanted to adopt him And we actually got to visit him there. And this couple were absolutely extraordinary people. The husband worked all day and then came home and spent like, I don't know when they slept all his time with the kids. They had nine or 10 kids. Some were foster kids they were fostering. Some were kids they had adopted. And the mom was just hustling all day long, getting these kids to school, taking care of the little ones and just cheery and upbeat and energetic. And I'm like, Who this is Wonder Woman, right? And they wanted to adopt Tyler. And that's my son's name. And the obstacle was that the Tyler's birth parents um, still had their rights. They hadn't been terminated yet, but they knew that that was the end game, that that was eventually they were going to have their rights terminated. But if they were going to fight the process, it could take years. And they reached a place where they said, okay, we're willing to sign away our rights for Tyler to him to be adopted by someone else. But we'd like to have a say so in where he goes, and who adopts our son, which is understandable. So there was me and my wife, and I should say my wife and I, good grammar for a writer, right? And two other couples, all of whom were interested in adopting Tyler. And we essentially had to fill out kind of an application to see why we would be a better choice. And we asked our caseworker, well, the couple that he's with now want to adopt him. Why? And they're, they're fantastic. They're, they're wonder parents. Why can't they adopt Tyler? Why are we getting a shot? We're glad we're getting a shot, but why are we getting a shot? They were a mixed race couple and the birth parents didn't like that. Mm-hmm. So their racism benefited my wife and I. Because it gave us a chance to adopt our son because we happened to match him in pigment. Um, So that's kind of an interesting side, not how sometimes there's even a silver lining in something that's negative. Um, But we got to adopt him. And a month after we adopted him, our caseworker called and we thought, why is she calling? The adoption's over. We'd never hear from her again, right? She said, Birth mom just had a baby girl and we need an emergency foster care placement for her. Uh, She's a day old and you might only have her for a day or two. You might not get to keep her. And we thought, oh my God. First of all, we thought we'd want to have, adopt another one someday, but we wanted to learn how to do one before we tried to do two. And here mm-hmm. all of a sudden we have uh, this baby girl fall out of the sky. And we thought, you know, the minute we see her, we're gonna fall in love with her. It's Tyler's sister. Um, can we take her in as an emergency placement only to turn around and hand her back and never see her again? And she'll never remember us because she's a day old. And we, we thought to ourselves, Tyler deserves whatever time with his sister we can give him. Even if we have her for a day and then we never see her again, someday we can tell him you do have a sister out there and you had some time with her and we tried to keep her. We just couldn't. We wanted to be able to say that. to him. So with four hours morning and us having nothing for a newborn and nothing for a girl, uh, she showed up on our doorstep and we took her in, and she had her own set of, of special needs and challenges, very different from Tyler's, but just as serious. And every couple of months, we'd get a call from the caseworker, uh, yeah, bring her to court on this day at this time, um, you might be losing her, or you're probably losing her, bring all her stuff. That's because, you know, when you've taken them in, that's your child. doesn't matter if they were born from your womb or from your heart. Um. And that was gut-wrenching. Those court dates were just horrible because we were so nervous. We were driving to the courthouse and maybe losing our daughter. And when she was three years and one month old, to try to shorten this story a little bit, we finally got to adopt her. Mm-hmm. So we have them both. Um, she's living independently now. Um, Tyler still lives with us. And uh, they're they're twenty 25 and 26 And uh, they're amazing. There's no tougher or better job than being a parent uh, to any child, and uh, it's been a heck of a ride. They're they're great kids. So yeah, that's for forget you know getting hit with a folding chair. Being a parent is is hardcore and extreme if you want to challenge yourself to do something. So yeah, that's working. My doctor used to ask me, "What do you do to relieve your stress?" And I'd say, "I work in a prison." (laughs) Because going to work was sometimes easier sitting in a watchtower with a rifle than wrangling teenagers. I think every parent can relate to that, but uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been fantastic.
0: Yeah, I can. I have have three teenagers One is
1: 18,
0: the other ones are 25 and 22.
1: Wow, yeah.
0: I totally can relate to that.
1: Well, and I, at the risk of getting in trouble with your female listeners, I, I have to say I I personally believe from what I've been through and what other parents I've talked to have been through, females are more difficult to raise. Females are much more complex creatures than males are. Males run on three or four drives, and it's pretty obvious what they are, and they're easy to figure out and deal with whatever problem they have. You ladies are far more sophisticated. Um, mm-hmm if something was upset with upsetting my daughter, it could be one of a hundred things and I couldn't figure it out. And sometimes even she didn't know. And if she did know, she wasn't going to tell me. So much more challenging raising a daughter, but again, she's my princess. Wouldn't give her up for anything, but yeah, it's parenting is a tough gig. You wonder how cool young people become stodgy old parents raising kids. That's how it happens.
0: Yeah, that's that's true. A conversation about how different raising a boy and raising a girl is i had three girls so i really didn't know but i've seen my sister who had two boys how different it was for her i mean they were like they get up they could care less how they look they're just rolling out and walk out the door the girls are going to have their makeup and all this other stuff on and it's like
1: Ugh. oh yeah it's it's uh, apples and oranges for sure you know if you ask your son what's wrong and he says nothing uh, it's, it's nothing. If you ask your daughter, what's wrong? And she says nothing. You're like, Oh, what something serious is going on. we got to figure out what it is. So different world.
0: So do you ever think that you'll write a book about your own experiences with the foster care and adopting? Because I think that was something that a lot of people would be interested in, in hearing. Or do you think you want to be private to, to
1: your kids? Um, well, I, I don't think I would go Too direct. Although, I mean, if you change the names, unless you know me and know my story, you're not going to know how true to life it actually is. I don't know. I would. I, I take my writing seriously, and I try to do the best I can. But writing fiction, you know, writing crime stories is one thing. Trying to do right by someone who's actually a real person and to to serve their story well. Uh, that's a heck of a responsibility. That's that's a whole nother challenge. Um, I might. I'm. I'm not limiting myself. I'm not. I haven't said. Okay, you're just going to write cop novels because that's what you started with, and you're going to be known as the guy who writes the cop novels. I'm not. You know, if I decide to wake up and write a sci-fi story or a western or a romance, I'm going to give it a shot and see what happens. I'm not going to limit myself that way. But I don't know. Maybe a fictionalized version of that. And I'm sure some of it will kind of creep into um my stories like uh the wrestling has in this one. I put it in there because it's it's part of who I am. Um so I don't know. Maybe if I feel like I can do it justice. Um one of the things I'm considering is trying a true crime book. Um I don't know if you know who Joseph Wamba is he's old now, but in for decades, he was a very popular writer. He started out, he's a former cop, he started out writing cop fiction, but occasionally would write a true crime story. Um, He wrote actually a book in the 80s about the first story in the world where genetic fingerprinting DNA was used to solve a crime. Um, So he did both. And I thought, well, I wonder if I get tired of writing these fictional crimes, if I could actually research and do a true crime book about something that's actually happened. But again, you'd have the burden of trying to do right by real people and telling their story, honestly and faithfully and fairly. And I don't know if I'm good enough to do that yet. We'll, we'll see, but um, I've thought about it. There's a local case here in Florida that I'm very interested in a woman who's been missing for 15 years and uh, there's, her parents are still fighting heroically to try to find her and find out what happened to her. And no one's written their story yet. It's been on TV, but no one's written a book. And I've thought, you know, wow, they're an hour from my house. Maybe this is something I could try to do. And maybe a book would raise awareness and maybe help get them some answers and bring her home. But I'll have to believe I'm good enough to do it before I try it. So reality is is a whole another set of responsibilities than fiction. So That's true.
0: Maybe... So do you think you'll have any characters? I know there's one author that I read. Her daughter has Down syndrome and she always weaves into her books, a character with Down syndrome to show just how normal it is. It's not like, it's not as scary as most people. And yeah, it's got its challenges, but it's not as scary as most people think it is.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it's important to break down barriers, I think, and to build Bridges and introduce people to things they're not familiar with. Um, I try to step outside my comfort zone as much as I can. Um, I There's an awful trend I'm noticing in society and in books where it seems like you're being discouraged from working outside the box, uh, writing about things that you're not personally part of. Um, and I think that's wrong. I think that divides people and and separates people instead of uniting us all together. Um, I think if, uh, you know, my, my character is a, a female, I'm obviously not female. And, uh, so Some people can make the argument, well, how can you write about, you don't know what it's like to be a woman. How can you write about how difficult it is to be a woman and what it's like and how a woman thinks and all this other stuff. And true, if I could figure out how a woman thinks, I would write that book and be talking to you from a yacht somewhere because I'd have sold a billion copies of that book to every guy on the planet. But I think it's important to work hard to try to understand people, especially people who are not like you. Um, So, yeah, anything you can do like that. I, I may... In future, do that and and talk about some of the adoption issues as well as some of the health issues that my kids have and have gone through to try to raise some awareness of that. Um, Not not try to stand on a soapbox with the book, but make it part of the world so that people maybe learn something while they're getting entertained. Yeah, that's that's admirable. And that's definitely something I'd like to do.
0: Yeah, because it brings about more normalization. The more you talk about, it, it brings
1: about something that you shouldn't look down
0: on, you know.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, we should be elevating each other. Absolutely, relate. Everybody is equally worthwhile and deserving of consideration. And you should understand something before you talk about it. I, good lord, if we, if we all knew what we were talking about we'd all be a lot better off so no
0: so true yeah so what is up next for you
1: what is up next i'm finishing the next book in in uh for emmeline sullivan which is called israfel fallen and resolves this particular storyline and i'm outlining two more books um And the third one will start a whole different storyline, a whole different set of challenges, and a whole different totally bizarre kind of crime uh, for Emmeline. And that book is called The Eight Legs of the Devil. So I'm going to stick with Emmeline for a while. uh, As long as I can keep her fresh and interesting, I think she's someone that any reader will root for and get behind and be entertained by. And I may consider writing something nonfiction. Uh, most of what I read is nonfiction, so I may I may try my hand at that. But for right now, I, I want to get this second book, Israfel Fallen, ready. Um, we're launching – Israfel Rising is out there for purchase, but we're officially launching it on January 19th, which is Edgar Allan Poe's birthday. I thought that was appropriate. And uh, I should have Israfel Fallen ready to go. And for purchase, I'm hoping by summer, and hopefully have the eight legs of the devil ready for the holiday season next year. Because you got to think about these marketing things, I guess. But that's that's the plan, time and health and life permitting. Uh, 2021 almost certainly has to be an easier year. God, I hope so. Um, so hopefully we'll uh, we'll get all those things done. But that's that's what I've got planned so far. So where can people come uh, I am trying, I'm making every effort to follow the advice of every writer I've met and become a social media self-promotion juggernaut. Um, I'm on Facebook, is uh, just Steve Gans, G-A-N-S. Um, I'm also on Twitter and trying to learn how that works. I'm on Instagram ditto and I'm on Reddit uh, double ditto because I'm really struggling to figure out how Reddit works, but I'm old. I mean, I can, I'm, I can program a VCR, but anything more recent than that technologically gives me a challenge. I've also got my own website, uh, stevergans.com uh, where I'm trying to keep track of everything. I have a blog and um, putting links up to things and there's a little preview of the book. Uh, and in fact, if you go to Amazon and find Israel Rising and click on the cover, you can read the first three chapters for free. So if uh, people want to do that, see if it's their cup of tea, they can do that. Um, but uh, I'm out there trying to get the word out to, to as many people as possible. And uh, I'm meeting lots of great writers too. Um, and I'm, I'm reading their stuff and I'm, I'm blown away and humbled by it. But uh, I'm going to, Try to keep my myself in the game. There's a lot of good stuff out there, but I think there's room for me. I'm gonna I'm gonna find out because we all love a good story. So if I can do that, I'll be all right. Um, but yeah, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, and SteveArgans.com.
0: I want to thank, thank you. you. Coming on today and sharing about your story and about your life because I mean it's a very I can't wait to read some of your books because it's you got all these things that are going to apply to the book apply Uh,
1: yeah it'll all get in there somewhere because you write what you know so I appreciate you giving me the opportunity I am in stellar company I've been uh, listening to some of your other episodes um terrific and diverse group of people you get uh, which is fantastic. I'm I'm learning new stuff. And I uh, one of the things I do in my spare time, I'm no Gordon Ramsay, but I do like to bake stuff. You probably can't tell looking at me, but I love uh, desserts. And I'm going to try those uh, mini coffee cakes you've got that recipe for. I'm going to see if I can do that and make them, if mine can come out half as good as yours look, I'll be happy. So thank you for welcoming me uh, into the show today. It's great.
0: Being in the blog, virtually in the blog cabin. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Melissa.
0: So guys, we will see you on the next episode of the blog cabin. Thanks again. Y'all I'm just so impressed with Steve. He was actually 54 when he first published his first novel and he has several more in, um, In the works, and I really his whole thought process of how he creates his novels, and actually thinking of a person who who would play the character is something I have not heard of before. Because every time I've asked any of authors that have come on this podcast to act to who they would want to play the characters, they're they're kind of at a loss. So, I think this is a really good way um, to do that. And I really love how he already has a person in mind. And it's really cool. And he, the story of how he adopted his two kids. And you could tell that he had a lot of love for his his children. And, you know, his the, the relationship with his wife was super strong. And I absolutely cannot wait to dive into his book. I will put the link to the sh- to his book um, on Amazon. I will put it in the show notes so you can go by and grab it. As you know, I always, whenever I can find them on Amazon with the affiliate links, I always put affiliate links in because it kind of gives me a few dollars here and there that I can get from, but y'all, I I am really interested in this book, especially considering it was based on a story that he heard um, when he was a prison guard, correctional officer. So I hope you really enjoyed this interview with Steve. I have several more coming up. Um, I have a father-daughter writing team that is going to be coming up soon. They're going to kind of end out the parenting. Um, Then I have a mom who has adopted eight kids and basically went on the road with her kids. And eight kids that were special needs. So, guys, I really, really hope you're enjoying this series. Um, Like I said, I have a couple more before we close out and then I'll start a series on business and I think business is going to be the month of February. So I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Be blessed. Um, Love if you'd leave a rating or review wherever you watch it or wherever you listen to. If you watched him on YouTube, go subscribe please to the YouTube channel. I would love for you to subscribe. Chats from the Blog Cabin. Um, If you are not on the YouTube channel, and you don't catch them on Facebook Live, and you're only listening to the podcast, I would love for you to leave a rating or review on the podcast and let me know. Share, 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 get it in front of other people. And thank you so much for being part of the family. And my heart just goes out to you. Hope you have lots of blessings in your week. And you know what I need you to do? That's right, start chatting with each other.